I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing Evan Thomas, one of our nation's top historians about his new book, Road to Surrender, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II, which came out on May 16, 2023. We did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas one week after the book came out. Enjoy. Welcome. We're so glad you're here this morning uh, with our special guest, Evan Thomas. Uh, Evan's book came out last week. Dallas is his first stop. We're so glad he's here. He's been through Dallas on his prior books. I've worked with him many times. Uh, Evan started out in journalism. He was one of the top editors at Time and Newsweek. But in recent years, he's devoted himself to being a historian. Uh, I've done programs with him on his book, Ike's Bluff, on Eisenhower's foreign policy, Nixon, Sandra Day O'Connor, and now Road to Surrender. Please welcome Evan Thomas. You might turn your chair around. So you're... And I want to thank our sponsors who make this all possible. Obviously, the wonderful people at Crow, who are our hosts and take care of our books. Uh, my law firm, the Shackelford Law Firm. We've got many people here from Shackelford. Uh, Price Waterhouse, is Christy Romo here? Hey, Christy. So glad Price Waterhouse is a sponsor. Uh, SMU Cox School of Business Alumni Association, my great friend Kevin Knox, uh, Wells Fargo Private Wealth, Ken Rabinowitz. Where you, there's Ken. Uh, Overland Architectural Firm, Robin Blakely and Brian Truby, great friends. And Swinnerton Construction, Jeff Blakely and his team. Uh, Robbie Briggs uh, and his friends. And last but certainly not least, our great friends at Security National Bank, Private Wealth, led by Gary Ward. So we are glad to have their uh, uh, consistent, steady sponsor. So it's your sponsors who took care of the cost and buying your book and your coffee. and your. So be good to them, send them business, and maybe they'll invite you to another event. Uh, we got a, a good schedule lined up. So anyway, on to the book. Uh, I always like to read the acknowledgments at the back to kind of find out what it was that really inspired the author to want to write this book. So, Evan, in your acknowledgments, you talk about having a personal stake in the dropping of the bombs on Japan in August of 1945. What's your connection to the atomic bomb? Well, first of all, I want to thank Talmadge, who has been a wonderful friend to me over the years. He's a great lawyer and a great historian. Uh, those two actually go together pretty well. Uh, so I'm really happy to be here. My own uh, bomb story is personal because my father was a junior officer on a landing ship tank heading for the invasion of Japan in August 1945. And my uh, sister has my, my grandmother's diary. And my mom, who was a young bride, was on her way down to see my father, to see him on a ship 
as they were going from Europe, he'd been in D-Day, over to the Pacific for the invasion. And uh, my mom, uh, blushing bride that she was, told her mother uh, that she was going down to see my father. And she said, I, I hope I get pregnant. And my grandmother wrote in her diary, I hope she does not, because she was afraid he would die. Uh, a lot of people were supposed to die in that invasion. Uh, we don't know exactly how many, but hundreds of thousands. The Japanese were waiting with a million men, 7,000 kamikazes. It was going to be a bloodbath like no other. So the story in Mayo's family was we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the atom bomb. As we'll see, it's a little more complicated than that. Right. But that's a pretty strong impetus to get me working on this so book. Stay interested throughout yeah. your life. Uh, the, uh, the title, Road to Surrender, you know, I've obviously read the book. It's wonderful. But the word road to surrender doesn't come up until page 182 in the context of Hirohito's vision, the emperor of Japan, for ending the war after the second atomic bomb had dropped. So could he have seen that road to surrender without both bombs having been dropped on Japan? No. People like to ask me, you know, did we really have to drop a bomb on Japan and did we really have to drop two of them? And couldn't we have done a demonstration on a desert island? And when I started this project, I thought the answer was, yeah, maybe we didn't need to do this. There is a whole school, academic school, that believes this. But as I got into this, and as I read particularly diaries from Japan, I came to realize that the Japanese had a death wish in 1945. Uh, hard for us to understand and relate to. Uh, they, they had a kind of a national love affair with death. And they, uh, the, the, the scene that reveals this most clearly to me is that on August 9th, three days after we dropped the first bomb, the Supreme War Council is meeting. The Supreme War Council is the six guys who actually run Japan, the military basically. And uh, as they're sitting there debating what to do, <clears throat> word comes that another Hiroshima-style bomb has just taken out Nagasaki. So that's two nukes. And the General Anami, the war minister, says to his colleagues, wouldn't it be beautiful if the whole country died like a flower, like a cherry blossom? Then he says... Let them drop 100 bombs. So some of that was bluster. But the state of mind was we're all going down. The 100, the 100 million, as they call them, uh, are all going to die for their country. It's crazy. It's not quite as crazy as it sounds for this reason. What the Japanese were really looking for is good terms. They knew they were defeated. Their cities had been burned, 60 of them. Their fleet was sunk. But they wanted... They did not want to be occupied by Americans, and they wanted to leave the military in control and preserve the emperor. They wanted those terms. We wanted unconditional surrender because we wanted their, to never fight this war again. And so that's a big gap. Uh, the only thing that crossed that gap was uh, two nukes and in a Russian invasion of Manchuria and an emperor who finally came around. Mm -hmm. Now, beside the bombs... Uh, one of our tactics for trying to get people to come around and ultimately surrender 
was dropping mass quantities of leaflets just down on the people for them to read. So what, what were in those leaflets, and, and were they effective? Well, some of the leaflets said, we're going to bomb your city, but they said we're going to bomb one of several cities. They kept them guessing which city <laughs> we were going to bomb. We wanted to give them the sense of overwhelming force that we are unstoppable. There really was no Japanese Air Force by 1945, except for the kamikazes hidden in planes. They had some planes that could take off but not land, and they'd lost almost all their pilots. Most of their pilots at that stage could take off but not land. But there really was, they had no air defenses to speak of. And so we would just uh, uh, fly over in what they call Bison, B-22s, Mr. B, uh, dropping these leaflets. And it was both, both merciful, warning them, but it was also taunting them a little bit because we wouldn't tell them which city we were going to spare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in your introduction, you say that President Harry Truman was not the main actor in the story of how America and its allies uh, came to end World War II in Japan. Since Truman was the commander-in-chief, how could he not be a main actor in the dropping of these bombs? It's a little counterintuitive. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of things. One is, when he was vice president, President Roosevelt didn't even tell him that we were building an atom bomb. FDR was a great president, but unbelievably, he didn't tell him. He only he, met with him a couple of times. He didn't get a high grade in Not communication in with vice president. He had congestive heart failure. He knew he was at risk of dying, and yet he didn't tell his own vice president. So it was a rude shock to uh, Truman. I think Truman had a little inkling, but he didn't know much about it. Uh, and so he's, he's a guy who's overwhelmed with a lot of things going on at once. Now, the general who ran the Manhattan Project, the group building the bomb, was General Groves. General Groves famously said of Truman, he was like a little boy on a toboggan. In other words, this a kid on a toboggan, going down a hill, out of control, doesn't know where it's going. That's a harsh judgment of Truman, that's not quite right. Truman was the president of the United States. <clears throat> he did make the decision. But this project was pretty far along. We'd spent a couple of billion dollars. We had no other way to end the war. It would have taken a remarkable act for Truman to say no. There's no evidence that he ever really considered saying no. He was mostly along for the ride. Having said that, he was a stand-up guy who did take responsibility for it afterwards. <clears throat> One of the anecdotes, and after the war, he became sort of defiant about it. There's a movie coming up about uh, Oppenheimer and the scientists, which you may all want to see in July. And they may have this scene in <clears throat> November. The bombs are in August. In November, Oppenheimer, the great scientist who essentially built the bomb, and designed the bomb down in New Mexico, he comes into the Oval Office and he says to President Truman, I have blood on my hands. He's tortured by it. And Truman kicks him out of the office and he says, I never want to see that crybaby again. And he would make fun of him, wringing his hands. Mm -hmm. That's a little harsh, but it shows you the pressure that these men were under and the different ways they had to deal with the fact that they killed a couple hundred thousand people like that. Now, one of your book's interesting conclusions on the subject of how the war ended was it actually saved a whole lot more Japanese lives 
than American lives had we invaded. So, I mean, obviously, if we dropped dozens and dozens of bombs, but what were the other factors in play that could have uh, impacted the entire Japanese population? The Japanese population was starting to starve to death. And uh, they were down to about 1,500 calories a day because we were encircling them, blockading them, strangling them. We had total control of the seas. Uh, our submarines were sinking anything that moved. And they were on the verge of a mass famine. So even if we had not dropped the bombs, there's a pretty good bet that we would have just strangled them and, and mass famine leading to disease, civil war, chaos. This is a very perverse calculus, and I don't make it comfortably, but by killing a couple hundred thousand Japanese, we probably saved millions of Japanese. And not just Japanese, but Asians. Japan, as you recall, had occupied great chunks of China and Southeast Asia. The Japanese were not benign occupiers. They were brutal. And people were dying in Asia at the rate of 250,000 people a month. The story that I like to tell to illustrate this is that there was a massive famine in Vietnam. Why? Because the Japanese took the entire rice crop in a desperate attempt to make aviation fuel out of rice. It failed, but a million people died of famine in Vietnam because of it. Wartime is, can do strange things, horrible things. So the bombs, Again, I perversely saved hundreds of thousands of people. I tell that story about my, it's the bomb saving me. I actually, I think the scholarship suggests we never would have invaded Japan. It's part of the myth, I know. But I say that because when President Truman authorized the invasion of Japan, it was June, and we were planning for an invasion of about 900,000 soldiers, the, the largest invasion ever in history, uh, against a force we, we thought of about uh, maybe half a million men, maybe less. By August, two months later, our radio intercepts of Japanese military intelligence showed the Japanese now had a million men on that journey. They, they knew where we were coming. There were three beaches on Kyushu. They, there was no mystery about where this invasion was going to take place. So not, we have 900,000 men. They have a million. The rule in amphibious invasions for you World War II buffs is you're supposed to have a three-to-one advantage because you're coming in from the sea and you want to have a lot more men than they do. Well, we had lost that three-to-one advantage. Plus, we knew the Japanese were hiding kamikazes in the caves, not just kamikaze planes. They had kamikaze swimmers and kamikaze frogmen and kamikaze and, and women with spears. I mean, it's just... The whole country had were 28 million of them now under arms. Huge bloodbath. So by early August, the Navy Chief of Staff, King, Admiral King, said, Navy's out. We're not in for the invasion anymore. The Navy had lost, had been hit by 2,000 kamikazes at Okinawa. And they said, we're not doing it. We want to strangle, that we want to blockade. The Air Force, every every service does what it wants, is good at. The Air Force was saying, no, 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 we can we can burn them out. We don't need to invade. It was just the army that still wanted to invade because General Marshall believed he got a boots on the ground, and General MacArthur wanted to do it because he was going to be the supreme commander of the greatest invasion in history. 
so they were still for it, but there was enough division in the services that I think there's a good chance that had we not dropped those atom bombs, we wouldn't have invaded Japan, my father would not have died, we would have starved and, yeah, starved the Japanese people. Mm -hmm. Now, one of your book's central themes is moral ambiguity, the idea that you have to take lives to save lives. And so, is it accurate to say that this decision and the impact the decision to drop and then drop the atomic bombs, was it something of a tipping point on this issue of the moral ambiguity associated with pursuing a full-scale war? It's an extreme form. I, one of the terrible things about war is that it forces you into these dark corners where you've got to kill people to save people. We're watching it right now in the Ukraine. It's, it's an eternal issue. And if you're one of the policymakers... Uh, these, think of these. These are men, and, and they were men in 1945, although their wives suffered too. Uh, just on that note, this is Henry Stimson. Henry Stimson, who's one of the heroes of my... One of the three. One of my three. He's the Secretary of War, and he is the chairman of the Board of the Bomb. I mean, he's the guy who's running the show. And I have his diary, and his diary, he's a very stiff upper lip, uh, stern... East Coast. Serious guy. Don't mess with Henry Stimson. Uh, but in his diary, he's in agony. He refers to the bomb as the terrible, the awful, the diabolical. He knows how bad it is. And he is so stressed out, he can't sleep. But not just Henry Stimson. His wife collapses at dinner. And it's one of those weird things. The shrinks have a word for this. It's called projective identification. You may have noticed this in your own marriage, where, <laughs> where your spouse takes your problems and carries them. And she had a little cold and it went <clears throat> conked out. And, you know, I'm no shrink, and maybe it was just dehydration. But I think it's an interesting coincidence that this happened just at the moment he's writing his diary. I'm totally upset about this. And obviously communicating, maybe wordlessly, with his wife just how stressed out he was. But they're all carrying uh, tremendous stress. The war's been going on for four years. Imagine the decisions you're making as Secretary of War. Like, how many bomber missions should these guys have to do when their chance of surviving 25 missions is maybe one out of four? And you're the, you're the decider saying, okay, well, let's, let's bring it up to 35 missions. How well do you sleep? Um, Stimson was so exhausted, he went down to Florida to recover for a week, and he went to a, what they call a redistribution center. This is where pilots are coming from Europe, getting a little R&R in Florida before they go to Japan. And Truman meets, excuse me, Stimson meets with them, and he sees how exhausted they are. And he thinks, I gotta send these poor bastards over to fight a worse war. And he writes in his diary, I know they'll do it. These are dutiful men. They'll serve their country. But do we really have to do this? And, it, of course, it eats at them. I mean, no matter how stoic, they used to say that Stimson was uh, the human icicle because he was so steely, that New England uptight thing. Uh, and, 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 quote, New England conscience on legs. He was very, he was a good, he was a good Christian. He, he was a good Christian. He was not a fake Christian. He was the real thing. He's a good Christian who was consigning 
thousands of people, his own and others, to death on a daily basis. How do you deal with that? Well, you talk about it. He had not one but two heart attacks. Well, one, one way your body deals with it, on the morning that Henry Stimson showed the photographs of Hiroshima, the, the aerial photographs of what Hiroshima looked like after the bomb, I, I wish we had a picture of it. What it looks like is the inside of an ashtray. I mean, there's nothing there. It's just gray ash. Four miles. Of so he's showing these pictures to the President of the United States. Henry Stimson had a heart attack. He had a little heart attack. He had a bigger heart attack a month later when Truman turned down his plan for arms control. You think there wasn't a cost on these folks? Uh, all of them. You know, they died young and, and they, they drank too much and all the stuff that people do to deal with these kind of decisions. Well, you say in the context of this Japanese mindset that had to be overcome to achieve surrender that as of the summer of 1945, after Germany had surrendered, the war is entirely against Japan. Most Americans had no clue about this Japanese mindset. We will not surrender. So... What was your research to try to get your arms around the Japanese mindset that was essentially not known by most Americans? Well, on, on that, most Americans didn't really want to know. They wanted their, 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 their couple of things. They wanted their sons and husbands to come home in a long war. They wanted to get it over with. They were not feeling too sympathetic about the Japanese, aside from the fact that they're a different race. The Japanese that they knew, Japanese of Pearl Harbor, and the propaganda coming back in, or not the propaganda, the reality was photographs of Japanese executing, slicing the heads off of captured pilots. The Japanese penchant for atrocity had made its way back to the United States. And the American public was less than sympathetic. When we were firebombing cities in the spring, there was not a great you, you and cry from the public, hey, Jesus, we shouldn't be doing this. It was, okay, let's burn Tokyo, if, especially if we'll get this damn war over faster. The regrets largely came later. A uh, famous book called Hiroshima, written by John Hersey, a year later. You can see it moves the poles. Once people actually read about what it's like to be in a nuclear explosion, the poles start moving and people become, but it's still, most, of, most people believe that bomb was necessary. It's roughly a third don't. If you go to a fancy college, you learn that it was, I think, wrongly, you learn that the bomb was unnecessary. So maybe a third of the population is, is against it. You know, it's a miserable. Mm -hmm. Now, your book is, focuses on three men. We've talked about Henry Stimson. Let's talk about the, the second American, General Carl Tui Spots, I learned to pronounce last night, who was the head of the strategic bombing in the Pacific. Wasn't he just following orders? in dropping these bombs, or, or what makes him such a central figure? He's one of your three. Spots was a, a good soldier, and I'm, I don't mean that in ironic sense. I mean in the best possible sense. He was an un, unusual general because he was low-key, and he didn't brag. A lot of these guys, General Patton is the most famous, but they, I love that the, in the, the Pacific Theater, the generals had names like Howland Ben Smith, the terrible Turner... You know, the, 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 the leadership mode in those days didn't really emphasize being warm and friendly with the troops. Uh, it was okay to be angry. Uh, and they were, and they, it was motivational, too. 
but the type that we're all familiar with is the angry, hot-headed, egotistical, powerful. Another one I remember, Vandergriff. I remember the scene of him. Here's how they motivated. In, in Guadalcanal, the pilots got so exhausted and fearful that they had trouble getting in their planes. There's a scene of the Marine general in Guadalcanal kicking a pilot who's huddled underneath his plane, can't get in the plane. The general is kicking him. I don't think that would pass muster today, uh, but, you know, war is hell. And, uh, but, but, but Spots was the opposite. He was a low-key guy, never called attention to himself. You've never heard of him. Uh, he was the air commander and strategic commander in Europe. Got more, got more Americans killed than all the Marines killed in the Pacific. 28,000 airmen died over Europe. That's more than all the Marines that died in the Pacific. It was hell up there because the Luftwaffe was shooting at us and these planes were falling out of the sky. And Spots was the guy who had to send them there every time. His way of dealing with this was poker. He played poker every night. And he would have a couple of highballs. He wouldn't get drunk, but he'd have a couple of pops. And he'd play poker every night. And revealingly, you've heard of Dresden, the firebombing of Dresden. That was one of the more sad moments in, in bombing. February 1945, British and American planes firebombed a beautiful medieval city that had been largely untouched and turned it to ashes and killed tens of thousands of people. And there was a reaction against it. The public finally went, whoa, was this really necessary? And the blowback came even from Spots' own uh, bosses. And for a moment, Spots was kind of rattled by what he had done. And uh, his, his granddaughter showed me a letter Spots uh, lost $1,700 that night on poker. That was two months' salary in 1945. And his assistant had to write a letter home to Mrs. Spots explaining how Tui, as he was called, had just blown two months' salary on a poker game. And, of course, she understood. She knew. She had only seen him once in three years. She knew what stress he was under. And that's, that's, how, he, that's how he dealt with it. And then the third and final character, and probably for me the most interesting, the Japanese foreign minister, last name Togo, I won't try to pronounce his first name, who was the only man in the war council who advocated surrender. And he ultimately was key in motivating, inspiring Hirohito to surrender. So what, what was his approach to get the emperor to come around to this is what we need to do? He's an unlikely hero. You've never heard of him. He was, he was the war minister. He's the only civilian on the Supreme War Council. Six people run Japan. And war minister, Army, Navy, Chiefs of Staff. The prime minister is an admiral. But, uh, but Togo's a civilian. He's a foreign service guy. Uh, very severe, dour, not very likable. Uh, he, he, he's, he loves the Germans. He's married to a German wife. Not the Nazis. He thinks Hitler's a thug, but he likes Goethe and Schiller, the 19th century high Germans. Um, he's the one guy who sees we got to surrender here. The problem is persuading the, the, uh, the, the emperor. The thing about Togo was the Japanese are extremely indirect. Some of you have probably done business with the Japanese, and they're very polite, 
and they couldn't be nicer, but knowing what they're actually saying, and that's true even amongst each other. There was something called haragai, which is a Japanese word for the stomach game. You would signal very indirectly what you were trying to say. I mean, it was almost by, by winks and nods. And Togo was unusual because he was blunt. This made him a little unpopular. He was also very brave because in Japan, the Japanese government, the word, the word surrender was forbidden. They couldn't even use the word. And he wants to surrender. He's a target for assassination. He had to be protected by the police, and he didn't even trust the police because the young hothead officers down below, they want to fight to the end. Togo, the first thing Togo did was he get the Supreme Council to meet in private, secretly. Some of you probably had this experience where you don't want your assistants around uh, so you can have a truthful conversation. That's how they had truthful conversations, by clearing the room so that there, none of their assistants could be there who could later kill them if they talked about surrender. So he gradually starts maneuvering this group, but he gets to the emperor because the emperor is starting to realize that the military is lying to him. They have been lying to him, and they're continuing to lie to him, and they want to move him in an armored train up into the mountains. And the emperor realized he's essentially being kidnapped by his own military. And although he's somewhat of a meek fellow, he gets some courage here at the end, and he stands up to his own military. He's also picking up radio signals that show that the 509th Composite Group, the air group that dropped the first two atom bombs, is in the air around Tokyo. And he thinks, you know, the next one's coming for me. So finally, on the night of, of September 9th, he does the unthinkable. He calls up a sacred meeting, and he almost never speaks in Japan. You said September 9th. Did you mean? I'm sorry. I mean August 9th. On August 9th, he, he collects... The night after of Nagasaki. The night of Nagasaki. Finally, he gets together his troops, and usually the, the Supreme War Council makes a decision, and the emperor says nothing. Silent assent. The emperor is supposed to be above politics, never say anything, but he reverses these roles, and he calls them together, and he says, Togo, my man Togo, is right. I agree with him. We're going to surrender. That's not the end. There's another very messy, complicated five days, but at least the wheels are turning now to get out of this mess. Mm -hmm. Now, as we all know, during World War II, we were allies with the Soviets, and part of the reason the Japanese surrendered was because the, the Soviets decided they were going to start uh, attacking uh, Japan, which they did in Manchuria. There had been a neutrality pact before, which had expired. But when World War II ended, the Cold War began, and, and you quote Henry Stimson, one of his favorite maxims, the only way you can make a person trustworthy is to trust him. So uh, did we trust the Soviets too much uh, that, that gave them the confidence to pursue this, this Cold War and start doing what they did as soon as World War II ended? One of the agonizing decisions that was keeping Henry Stimson awake at night was what to do about Russia. And he went back and forth on this. I mean, it's not clear. In, in the spring, he's thinking, well, we have this atom bomb. It's kind of a MasterCard. Maybe we can intimidate Russia into going along with free speech, into liberalizing their society. Stimson was a great believer in what he called the law of moral progress. He believed 
that all roads eventually will lead to the world looking more like the United States. Freedom and democracy. And he hoped to persuade Russia to open up and to liberalize. And he thought at first, well, maybe with this sort of veiled fist of the bomb, that'll persuade him. We had it and they didn't. They didn't. And, and his aides, his smarter aides who'd been there said, that's not going to work. Stalin's not going to go for that. And then he thought, well, don't tell him anything. That, he thought about that for a while. And then after we dropped the bombs, he said, no, no. As Talmadge said, he, he, he had this, this saying uh, that he got from his secret society at Yale that if you want to trust somebody, if you want somebody to trust you, you have to trust them. That may work in your Yale senior society, but, <laughs> you know, it really didn't work with the Russians. And uh, it was Stalin. Uh, and so it kind of broke Stimson's heart. He, wanted, he went to Truman and said, we have to try to share the secret of the bomb. We have to trust him. And Truman said, maybe, which meant no. And we didn't. Uh, and there's no good answer to this question. Uh, it's hard to know what the right answer is, as always. And, but the arms race was often running because Stalin, as many of you know, had spies at Los Alamos, he'd already stolen the secret of the bomb. Uh, we didn't know that. We had all the security. Uh, but they had Russian spies, uh, and they basically stole the secret of the bomb. And on the night that Stalin heard that we had the bomb, he put in charge, who did he put in charge of his atom bomb project? Berea, the head of secret police. This is how, think about it. This is how Russia works. Who's the head guy to be on the bomb project? The guy who runs the secret police because that makes sure it'll get done. Everybody's afraid of Berea. And uh, they took them four years, but they got one. We were, some of our scientists were saying, oh, it'll be 20 years, four years. 1949, the Russians set off an atom bomb and were off and running. Within another 10 years after that, there were maybe 30, 40,000 nuclear weapons in the world. I think the number got all the way up to about 50,000. We've whittled it down now to about three or 4,000. But as you know, those numbers are going up again. <laughs> China just built a missile field. Now, after the second bomb dropped on Nagasaki, uh, you talked about what happened that night at the meeting with Hirohito and the, and the War Council. There were several days that went by before they finally surrendered. And during those days, there were negotiations over the terms of surrender. Talk about how those negotiations uh, transpired and what, what was the key or the key issues that went, they went back and forth on before they could reach agreement. Well, all, many of you have been in tense negotiations. Hard to get it right. Well, follow this one. So the emperor says, okay, we're going to surrender. But the guy, the head who's the head of his privy council says, okay, we'll surrender but we must insist that the emperor is still sovereign. The emperor reports to God. So the word gets back to Washington, good news, they're surrendering, but uh-oh, the emperor has got to be sovereign. Well, we didn't want the emperor reporting to God, we wanted the emperor reporting to Douglas MacArthur. So we put that back in our answer to that, is you have to answer to the supreme allied commander. And of course, that doesn't go well in Japan. So we're back at square one, and the Army hotheads are all angry again. They want to fight to the death. And poor Togo, my man Togo, who has pernicious anemia, I mean, he's sick as hell, 
have to try to rebuild this coalition uh, to surrender. And gradually they do, but not before there's a coup attempt. The, uh, been encouraged by the war minister, this guy, Anami, he finally realizes the jig is up. And so what does he do in the Japanese way? He takes his sword and he commits Harry Carey, which he goes like that, and then a second sword going like that. Uh, so he kills himself. But his young troops stage a coup. They kill the head of the imperial guard that protects the palace. And on the night before the emperor is to give his surrender speech, there are Japanese soldiers running through the palace looking for the recording of the emperor's speech. It's been recorded in order to be played on the radio at noontime. They're looking for this speech recording to smash it. They can't find it because it's hidden in a chamber reserved for the ladies-in-waiting to the empress. They never find it. But it's that close. And the young coup leader is a hothead, shoots himself out in the public square. And the emperor's speech gets played. And that's the end of it. But it was, it was that close. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the interesting things for me is during this whole time, there was the, the espionage was so successful that both sides knew what each, each other were doing. I mean, talk about the impact of espionage on how this all came to a head. Neither side really understood the other side. I mean, we're remote cultures, and we think differently. And, and we didn't have, it's not like we had James Bond. I mean, we didn't have human spies. But we were, had good code breakers. And the Americans, not the Japanese, but the Americans were able to break the Japanese diplomatic code and then pretty well break the Japanese military codes. So we were able to have a pretty good idea of what they were thinking at the top. Pretty good. Not absolute. We couldn't really read their minds. And, uh, you know, we had a strong signal that the, that the emperor, before the bombs were dropped, there was a signal that the emperor wanted peace. And that was a signal to the doves that, you know, maybe we can get out of this without an atom bomb. But it was complicated because the emperor was telling his, his, his ambassador to Moscow that he wanted Russia to help negotiate a peace. Well, Russia didn't want to negotiate a peace. Russia wanted to invade Japan. So the Russians kind of strung him along a little bit and then invaded Japan. That was the answer that the Japanese got. So the Japanese went down and fruitless diplomatic road here. We're watching this, or rather listening to it. Uh, but we have their doubts about it because the Japanese had played a diplomatic game before Pearl Harbor. They kept these negotiations going. Meanwhile, the Kido Butai, the Japanese strike force, is off Hawaii. And uh, Japan's ambassadors were about to meet with the Secretary of State when the bombs hit in Pearl Harbor. So the American view of Japanese diplomatic efforts is wary, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. Now, even though Truman is not a central character in the book, he's obviously important. And among historians, he's rated very highly, uh, supposedly our sixth greatest president behind Lincoln, Washington, both Roosevelt's and Eisenhower. Where are you coming out on Truman? We think of Truman, we think of David McCullough's Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Truman, which really caused Truman's stock to rise. Uh, what did you learn in your research, new and different, about Truman that you hadn't 
uh, determined before. I'm a Truman fan. I mean, I think that the McCullough book is a great book, and it, it captures the essence of the guy who took personal responsibility. The buck stops here. I think that's all true. But my period, it's a somewhat different picture in this way. One of the things that puzzled me was that on the night that Truman gives the order to drop the bomb, July 25th, 1945, he writes in his diary, he writes, I have instructed the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, my guy Stimson, and he is in agreement that the target will be a purely military target aimed at soldiers and sailors, not women and children. Oh, hello. Actually, the aim point in Hiroshima was a bridge in the middle of the city, surrounded by workers' homes. And yes, it did kill 10 to 20,000 soldiers, but it also killed 50 to 60,000 civilians, most of whom were women and children, because the men were all off the war. So what the hell was Truman thinking? And this is a problem for historians. This is a real-time document. He's not making this up after the fact. This is what he wrote that night. Uh, but what is he thinking? Well, he's in denial, maybe. We're all, all humans experience that. Uh, he doesn't really want to see what they're about to do. Uh, he may be writing for history a little bit. You know, I didn't... If you're president of the United States, you figure people are going to be reading my diary. But, but how, I want it but, to sound good. But, you know, how he thinks that's going to be reconciled with the reality is, is a mystery. And also, I think, and these how, this is, in the real world, we like to think it's all clear-eyed, and the group gets together, and they debate what to do, and they have all the facts. That's eh, not really how it works. I don't think it works that way in the business world e either. But it, 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 it's messier than that. And as it happened that day, Stimson and Truman did talk about the bomb. But what they really talked about was that Stimson wanted to take Kyoto off the target list. Kyoto is the ancient cultural capital of Japan, a very beautiful city for those of you who have been there, still is today, especially since we didn't nuke it. Uh, and so the conversation was really about, let's take Kyoto off the target list, I think which made both Stimson and Truman feel good that they were sparing this historic city and so we save Kyoto, so that Hiroshima, that must be a military target. Well, it wasn't. It had military there. It had army headquarters there, and a port was a military. But it was a city. But they managed to, because they needed to live with this terrible decision, they managed to convince themselves that really it's a military target. It's not until Truman sees the photographs of what Hiroshima looks like, that he goes, whoa, and then he takes control of the bomb back. He delegated it to the military. He takes control back, and he starts writing about, I don't want to kill any more women and children. He sees what these bombs have done, and they stop the progress towards building a third bomb for a time. But then when the Japanese won't surrender, the word goes out, get that third bomb ready. And most people don't know this, but Truman had authorized a third atom bomb to drop on Tokyo. And he told that to the, we've seen the cables, he told that to the British ambassador four hours before he received the word that Japan had finally surrendered. So 
Mexico. It wasn't necessary. But we were getting ready to nuke to Tokyo. Talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the impact of the bomb, how the people responded to it, the ultimate impact on those two cities. Well, I, you know, one of the sick, ironic things is we were, as I mentioned, we had firebombed 60 cities. 80% destroyed. But we were preserving a few cities with the atom bomb. How grim is that? Uh, we wanted to have untouched cities so we could see the strength of the bomb. And in one of the more gruesome conversations, Henry Stimson comes to uh, Truman and he says, you know, I'm really bothered by the firebombing that we're doing in these Japanese cities. We need to cut it back. We need to stop it. Um, uh, it it's bad for two reasons. One, it might make us look like the Germans, like Hitler committing atrocities. But two, I'm afraid that if we burn all the cities, there won't be any left to serve as a backdrop for this new weapon that we're building. You get the grim irony here? He's saving the village in order to destroy it. And in his diary, he writes, he writes, Truman laughed. That's a dark laugh. It's men using gallows humor. What else are they going to do? They're joking about this. I mean, it's not funny. But what else are they going to do? Because it's true, they were preserving cities in order to destroy them. Hiroshima, Kokura, Niigata, Nagasaki. They had a list of cities that weren't to be bombed, so they could be bombed by an atom bomb. And uh, uh, so Hiroshima was an untouched city. And one of the effects of this, they'd been flown over. They had so many air raid signals without the bombs falling that the people stopped obeying the air raid signals. Oppenheimer, who designed the atom bomb, was asked, how many people will this kill? He predicted 20,000 deaths because he assumed that people would take cover when the air raid sirens went off. On this warm, clear August morning in August 1945, the air raid sirens went off, but nobody took cover because they'd been going off for weeks and there hadn't been any bombs. So people didn't take it seriously. They saw a couple of gleaming fuselages 30 feet up, they didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. That was the Enola Gay carrying the atom bomb. And 43 seconds after it fell. But in the aftermath, how did they, you know, after the surrender, what became of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, at least in the short term, as they tried to, you know, rebuild their city and get on with life? They were ash heaps, of course, but they did rebuild them as, as people do. Uh, they had mixed feelings about all this. It's interesting. The Japanese are very ambivalent about the bomb. They, they, and, and they're pretty upset in, in Hiroshima for obvious reasons. Hiroshima is actually pronounced Hiroshima. Uh, but they, the, if you go to Hiroshima, there's a placard that says that we, we the Japanese, were at fault, uh, that we were militarists, and we are to blame for this. However, if you go to the Yasukuni War Memorial in Tokyo, where the generals are buried, that says, no, no, no. America is at fault for World War II. It still says that. Not our fault. It was America's fault. Those warmongers, they got us into it. Same country, two cities, two t entirely different versions of history. It sort of depends on who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. We have time for questions from the audience. Yes, sir. Would you stand up so we can all hear you? Uh, 
we should never use these things again. This is a little bit, I mean, I, this, I've written a book where I justify the American use of nuclear weapons. So this may sound a little contradictory or counterintuitive, but I think the message is never again. Because in 1945, when we used these two bombs, nobody else had them. There's no risk of escalation. We're the only people who have atom bombs. Today, plenty of people have atom bombs. I think about nine countries. And certainly the Russians and the Chinese have them. And what you don't want to get is a, on a slippery slope of escalation. There's starting to be a little talk again, which I think is pernicious, bad, about limited nuclear war. You could have a, a tactical exchange. A tactical means a, using a nuclear bomb as a battlefield weapon. And there are some small bombs that theoretically are battlefield weapons, but they're still nuclear weapons. They're still radioactive. They're still devastating. And one thing can lead to another. I wrote a book about Eisenhower. And when President Eisenhower was in charge, and he's the first president to really had to deal with these questions, to really have a nuclear arsenal, his military started saying, you know, we could probably fight a limited nuclear war, an exchange of tactical weapons that would stop there. And Eisenhower said, nonsense. Once you start that kind of war, you can't control it. Wars of national survival in a special have a way of spinning out of control. People will fight to the bitter end. And of course, I fear this in the Ukraine, that if, if Putin feels cornered that he's going down, he might use a tactical nuclear weapon, not because it militarily makes sense, but in a kind of spasm of anger. And anything where you, you have the, fear the risk of escalation, more worrisome to me is Taiwan and China. Because you could see going up that ladder uh, over Taiwan, it would work something like this. That's, if we start fighting over Taiwan, it's, it's not just going to be a sea battle. Because the Chinese in these war games, they are launching missiles from their mainland at our ships, from their mainland. So we would hit their mainland. So now we have American missiles hitting the Chinese mainland. That's not a good thing. Uh, they're going to respond, you know, you ratchet up with cyber, and they can turn our lights out here in Dallas, uh, or are they going to use some kind of tactical nuclear weapons? There have been various war game scenarios. If you want to chill yourself and not sleep for a couple of days, read a book called 2034 by Admiral Stavridis, uh, who was our Supreme Allied uh, Commander, about a, a fictional war with China in the year 2034. And it, this is the problem. They start at the nuclear ladder. Now, the average ICBM today on top of a, of a an average warhead on an ICBM is 100 times more powerful than Hiroshima. 100 times. So it's not just, you know, downtown Dallas. It's all of Dallas. Maybe Dallas-Fort Worth with some of these bigger ones. Uh, so it's, it's just a road you never want to be on, and you never want to be in the position of escalation. So I'm, although I, I know this sounds contradictory, although I justify our use against uh, Japan in 1945, I think we live in a world now where you never want to see these things used, ever. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Could you stand up, please, so we can all hear you? 
Absolutely. I mean, one of the, the there's, a, there's a sort of a racial school here that says, oh, we wouldn't have bombed the Germans because they were white, and you know, we bombed the Japanese because they're, that's just not true. Uh, the early planning documents show that we were building this thing because we thought the Germans were. That's what got this thing going, was to do it before the Germans could get there. And uh, at his press conference right after we bombed uh, Hiroshima, General Spots, my guy General Spots, says to the press, I wish we had had one of these at D-Day because we would have ended that war six months earlier if we'd been able to take out Germany from, from the very outset instead of having to invade Germany, uh, which you know took another D-Day, what, 10 months mm -hmm. uh, from, from June to May, right. 11 months. Uh, we could have ended it right away with an atom bomb. So I have no doubt we would have used them. Any other questions? Well, we're so glad you came. If you haven't gotten your book personally inscribed by Evan, he's going to be here. Uh, if you haven't gotten your book at all, we've got some Simons over on the table. But have a great morning. And Evan, thanks for a great presentation. Thanks for coming. Evan Thomas's marvelous new book, Road to Surrender, provides answers to the biggest questions about how World War II ended. It should be recognized as the definitive account of the dropping of the atomic bombs and Japan's surrender. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.